All right, well, we are continuing today in our series on Colossians. And um, if you remember, the, Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, and he's writing it to a church that he didn't establish and that he actually never met. Uh, they don't know him. Epaphras shared the gospel in Colossae, and uh, from that gospel seed grew a good little church. And the other thing just to remember is that Paul didn't really have anything negative to say about this church. Um, many other churches, whether it's Galatia or in Corinth, um, you know, you read the New Testament, Paul's correcting all kinds of problems, like these churches are off the rails. Colossae, good little church. And it's neat, because they're a church kind of like us. You know, we didn't have an apostle or a disciple to found us. Uh, we were founded third hand, so to speak, just like Colossae. And uh, I think we're a pretty good little church. You know, we're doing okay. Just a normal church filled with average Christians who are doing okay, who don't need a big rebuke from an apostle, I hope. Uh, I haven't doing my job if we do. Uh, so this is neat because we get to look at what Paul says to a church like this and really encourage them. And that's what this morning is about. He says, I struggle for your encouragement. And, uh, and he encourages them in unity, but not just unity, to go beyond that. And a, a lot of people, a lot of churches today especially, might think that if, if you can just be a good little church where there's unity, where, as Paul will say today in the text, we're knit together in love. Like most people would say, a lot of pastors today would put up their hand and say, I'll take it, I'm done. Like if we can just have a church where there's unity and we're all knit together in love, we have reached peak Christianity. Like this is peak Christian living. We can all get along, different classes, different races, you know, different people, different political opinions, and we're all together in love. A lot of people think, we're there, we've arrived, this is what God wanted for us. But we don't want to make this mistake of thinking that loving unity and community is the end goal of our Christian discipleship and Christian living. And don't dismiss too quickly, as I just said, that a lot of people in the context of the church think that that is the end goal, that just look content with unity. Like, if we can just maintain unity, we are happy there. It's certainly where they are content to stop. But if you think about it, there's many churches just happy with that tight-knit community and showing love to each other as an example to the world around them. And that's really as far as it goes. And Paul wants that for this nice little church in Colossae. But we learn in this letter, and it's especially emphasized in our text today, that a unified church, a, a church knit together in love for each other, is not actually the end. It's not the end goal. It's the starting blocks of a much bigger race that we need to go on to. It's just the good foundation on which we're meant to build and go further. So the question for us as a good little church filled with average Christians who experience a lot of unity is what is it supposed to reach on towards? What is the real end game of Christian unity? What does Paul hope Christian unity in love actually produces and well, because we also think of ourselves as a decent little church, that's a question that we should want to have answered. And Paul wants to answer that question for us. And so we're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and I'm just going to pray before we read the text. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this book of Colossians, this letter that Paul has written uh, from jail to these people that he's never met, just like he's never met us. <laughs> and 
And his prayer for them, his prayer for their growth and the knowledge and their understanding of the mystery of God, his prayer for them to be encouraged and assured in Christian unity and then knit together in love, these are all such great things that Paul prays for this church and we pray for ourselves. And so, Father, teach us this morning from your word, by your Holy Spirit, what you would have us do with this unity that you have blessed us with and that we do strive to maintain. And, Father, show us where you would have us go. In Christ's name, amen. So Colossians 2, verses 1 to 5, it's a little smaller text. And I've gotten carried away in past weeks trying to get through Colossians in just eight or nine weeks. And so I'm going to try and take smaller chunks of text, even in the larger pieces, so that, uh, yeah, so that we can really dig into what Paul is saying in particular phrases that he uses. So Colossians 2, 1 to 5. This is Paul speaking now. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, as I read a text like this, I'm just going to show you up front a little bit some of the thinking that I was doing, and then we'll unpack it. And so not content to gamble with just some little bits of technology, I'm taking it a step further, and we'll see whether this works. So I look at this and I say, okay, so Paul has a a great struggle that is going on. And is that working up there? Oh, yeah, that's good. So you can see. So he's got this struggle going on. And his struggle is, for these people that he's not seen, that their hearts may be encouraged. That's what he wants for them. Specifically, the struggle is that they would be knit together in love, right? So Paul really wants them with this unity. But then what I notice, and maybe I'll just, I'll see if I can do this. Can I do this? Can I change color? Oh, I can. What he wants them to do with that unity and love is he wants them to reach. He wants them to reach towards something. That's a bad arrow. (laughs) My muscles are still shaking from yesterday. (laughs) But he wants them to reach towards something out of this unity. What is he reaching for? Well, they're reaching for riches of assurance and understanding and knowledge of the mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden things, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look at all that in there. Oh, my goodness, I can't. It's a plastic pen on glass. It's not working very well. When I, it worked when I was sitting at my desk. It's not working so well here. Right? So Paul here, he says he wants unity, but it's unity to reach somewhere. And it's in order. He says in order. So there's a reason for this. In order that... Let me see if I can get in even another color. Oh, blue, let's say. Oh, that won't work. I got a blue background. Uh, go back to red in order that no one would delude you with arguments, right? And then he says some more at the end, which we'll get to. But you can start to unpack what Paul is saying here, okay? He has a purpose in what he is doing. 
And the, per, and, the, and the point that he's getting across is the importance of Christian unity. It's the importance of the unity. This struggling, the, the foundation, the starting point that Paul struggles for, probably referring to his prayer while in captivity and his constant letter writing and teaching and encouraging, which goes on and correcting to all the churches. That's the struggle he's talking about. Even while he's in prison, he doesn't stop. It's a burden Paul is always carrying to see the churches unified in love. It's a constant theme for whether it's Corinth or Galatia or Rome or Philippi. He keeps on about it. He says to them, stop arguing, you know, stop fighting, keep serving, stay humble, submit to one another, be kind. I mean, you've read the New Testament, you've read his letters. Paul goes on and on and on and on to these churches to preserve unity and be loving towards each other. It's a burden and a struggle of Paul because it's vitally important for something. It wasn't important If it wasn't important, Paul wouldn't struggle for it or teach so much about it. And at one level, it's very practical. There's very practical importances to unity in the church. First of all, how is anyone going to move forward onto more serious issues of their faith if they can't even sit together in the same worship service without disagreement? This is a practical reality of unity in the church. And teachers here today and online, I know we got a few teachers here, They can understand this. Teachers get this practical point very easily. Because how do you teach a student math if they're throwing paper airplanes at each other? How do they learn any geography if they can't even be civil to each other in the classroom? You know, how much, uh, you know, English are they going to learn if they are texting each other nasty notes, you know, or setting up a time to fight in the parking lot? And so unity in the church is important because you just need to learn. And you're not going to learn if there is no unity. It's practical in terms of maturing because also how credible is the teaching that we give if we're not able to follow it. So Paul says, be unified because you are an example to everyone else. How is anybody going to believe the lessons we teach in love and humility and service and self-sacrifice and kindness and mercy if the people in the class themselves and half of the teachers are backstabbing each other? It's hard to learn to swim in a class that is constantly trying to drown each other. And so there's a practical reality to unity, and it's practical in terms of the gospel, because how will the world believe a gospel of hope if we don't live it out? How, how, is God, how is the world going to accept a gospel or believe a gospel that God accepts and loves and is compassionate towards the marginalized if the church is actively marginalizing people? And so the first sort of quick lesson here is that unity to the church is important for the very basic practical reasons. But Paul says it starts there, and it goes beyond that. And if we look at the text, he says, being knit together in love to reach to reach something. Earlier translations often use the word attaining or to attain, but I like the English Standard Version that reads it as to reach, because it clearly gives us an image of this tight-knit group of people, this good little church of Colossians, these people knit together in love, and they are reaching beyond. They are stretching out as a community to attain something more than just a nice social club a group of people that get along. That's a great start, but they're reaching to attain something else. 
And the unity and love, of course, helps us practically in our purpose and our mission. But unity and love, Paul wants us to see, actually forms the basis for reaching and attaining something more. It's important for us in our maturing, for our moving on in the faith. So what is richer or more treasured than unity in a church? Or to put it another way, what is better than just a well-behaved classroom? What is greater than just a nice, friendly social community? And any teacher will tell you that a calm classroom is not actually the end goal. But as I said before, many teachers and many pastors, if they were offered just a calm classroom, they would say, I'll take it. I'll, I'll just take unity in the classroom, and I will figure my job is done. But, but pastors and teachers know that a calm classroom is not actually the end goal. The calm classroom is just the ability to actually accomplish the goal of teaching and of learning. It's the environment from which we can reach the fuller Christian life. So Paul says if you can get to the point of unity and love, then there is much greater fruit than simply a unified and friendly church. What is that fruit that Paul wants this church in Colossae to reach? There's a fruit of Christian unity. What are we reaching towards? Well, Paul summarizes. Remember, he said, to reach all the riches of full assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is, or you could say who is, Christ, in whom all are hidden, in all, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I'm not going to belabor this fruit that Paul wants for the Colossians too much today, even though Paul does belabor it. I mean, two sermons ago, we saw that the gospel of the seed from which the knowledge of God is meant to grow. Paul wanted, you have the gospel, I want you to grow in the knowledge of God. And then last week, we saw Paul gives himself as an example of suffering and striving to make the knowledge of God known and available to everyone. And now, he's going on about it again. And so, Paul is belaboring this point, and so I'm just going to belabor it a tiny bit. Our unity in love, what we are supposed to reach toward is assurance, understanding, and knowledge of God, which is the person of Jesus Christ, who himself is, in case you didn't get it, full of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul wants wisdom and knowledge and understanding in Christ, who is full of treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He wants you to be wise and knowledgeable in God and in Christ. That's what he wants. He wants all the riches of full assurance. And it's interesting, the, the Greek word here for all the riches of full assurance and understanding, so it's riches and treasures of, under, of assurance and understanding, the Greek word there for full assurance is pleraphoria. It's a very interesting word that Paul picks out here. Uh, it has a broad range of meaning, and they all apply. The, the root of the word is plero, which means complete or full or entire. And the suffix is phoria, which means bearing or composed of. And you might recognize it in a more common, say, English word that we've adopted or a Greek word that we've adopted into English in euphoria. Euphoria is good bearing. The, the Greek suffix eu is good, and phoria is bearing or composing. So when somebody says that it's euphoric or they're in euphoria, it means it's a thing that is good bearing. It's composed of good or well-being. That's what it means to be euphoric. So plerophoria means bearing completeness or nothing is lacking, and that's why it gets translated as full assurance. 
Because Paul says you can be entirely confident. You can be fully assured that there is nothing lacking in the knowledge and understanding of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I want for you. And that knowledge and that understanding and that full assurance that you are going to have is going to come from knowing the person of Jesus. And you string all those words together and it becomes a pretty fabulous sentence. It's embarrassing, really, how God wants us to be confident and assured and encouraged that we can really know what we need to know through Jesus. Because, as I mentioned, Paul doubles down again. It's in Jesus that we know we have the treasures of more wisdom and knowledge. And so any church that gets itself knit together in unity into a nice, loving community And at that point, if that church starts to pump the brakes and just pause and coast and say, hey, I finally found this great church where everybody gets along and they're all loving and they're all unified and I feel like I've arrived. Any church that stops there or is content to rest there is missing the point, is missing Paul's point. Paul isn't content with unity. The unity is the environment from which we reach on to the riches and treasures of the knowledge of God and Jesus. There are riches and treasures, full abundance for you if you don't settle for a nice social club. You say, okay, Paul, I get it. I get what you're telling this church in Colossae. I get what you're telling us. We get it. Knowledge and wisdom and understanding. That's what we're supposed to press on to. You've said it three times now. We're starting to get it. But to what end? Why? Why do we keep pressing into this idea that our job as Christians is to know God, know the mystery of Christ, dig into the full assurance of the wisdom that God has for us? Well, he starts to talk about that a little bit more now. Why is he praying for their knowledge? Why is he striving and suffering for it? Why does he struggle for them to have unity and to be able to reach on towards knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge to what ends, Paul? Why do we go there? Well, there's several ends. There's several fruit to Christian unity. And Paul's already summarized some of them. If you remember back in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, uh, Paul said that we wanted this knowledge of God so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and so that you can be strong with power for endurance and patience and joy. You see, knit together in love isn't enough. You can be full of love and unity of the gospel, but still be unwise, not understanding, without patience and power and joy. Do you see that? Paul wants these Colossians to press on into the knowledge of God so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, so they can be strengthened with power for endurance, with patience and joy. In other words, unity will not get them there on its own. Unity in, in love is not enough to get you the power of living in joy in the Christian life. You can have a church full of lovely people who get along fine, but are not necessarily the sharpest theologians in the toolbox. You can even have the most, you, they won't even be the most spiritually powerful or biblically wise people, and yet they are able to get along just fine. They can reach unity but not necessarily have power and knowledge and wisdom. And that being the case, when they don't have that power and that wisdom, they can make some bad life choices, and they can walk in a manner not worthy of God. And so one thing Paul has already said is that knowledge and wisdom 
is to know God and to walk uprightly in him. And we won't walk uprightly with God without knowledge. That was verses 10 and 11. So we need that. But here, Paul summarizes three other points. Three other purposes for discernment, for for unity. He says, discernment, order, and steadfast faith. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so Paul says there's a purpose. There is an end result of the unity, and the purpose of the unity is to seek knowledge in God. And there is a reason for the knowledge in God and the mysteries in Christ. It is to walk in good order, as he's talked about. But here he says it's for discernment, order, and steadfast faith. He says, this is why I'm saying this. Pay attention. This is the main reason I want you to get this. No one may delude you with plausible arguments. In other words, you need to really dig deep. You need real, full, complete, rich knowledge of God in Jesus Christ so that you won't be fooled, so that you have discernment. Because this is what Paul is saying to this nice little church in Colossae. He's saying, happy little church, happy little Colossian church, or maybe happy little Halliburton church. The city around you, the culture around you, the people in your families, the government, the poets, the writers, the educators, your friends, they are going to fill the air with arguments. He says, with plausible arguments. Paul gives them credit. These arguments are going to sound good. They will be carefully constructed, intricate arguments. They may be a house of cards in the end, but they will be a well-built house of cards. They will be a compelling house of cards. And Paul is saying to this good little unified loving church in Colossae, he says, if you don't have full assurance of the knowledge of God, you could be deluded. I'm telling you this so that you don't get deluded by compelling, plausible arguments that will fool people who are operating with incomplete knowledge. I love the fact, Paul says, I strive, I pray, I struggle that you will be knit together in love and that you will have this encouraging unity. But he says there's a point to it. There's a point to it. It's to learn the knowledge of God and go deeper in the wisdom of God so that you are not deluded by plausible arguments because that is what will happen to you You will live in a city, you will exist in a culture that will bombard you with plausible arguments, and you will fall if you don't know them. R.C. Sproul has this great, fantastic phrase, which I've mentioned before, and why discernment is so important for Christians and why Paul stresses it. R.C. says, discernment is not the ability to know right from wrong, because anybody can do that. Discernment is the ability to know right from almost right. And that's what Paul's after here. Paul's saying you can't just be happy-go-lucky Christians pretending everything's going to work out all right. You need to know the Word. You need to know God. You need to know the Gospel. You need to know Jesus. And in Jesus, He is a fount. He is riches of wisdom and knowledge for you. You need to be able to tell the difference between plausible and true. Because plausible is not true. Plausible is just plausible. It's almost right. They're not the same thing. And the arguments of your culture that they will throw up at you will be plausible. In fact, they will not even be entirely wrong. They will be, in a lot of ways, right. 
But if those arguments of the culture exclude the knowledge of God and the person of Jesus Christ, if they do not account for the implications of the gospel, then those arguments of the culture will always just be almost right. Philosophy gets a lot right about the human condition. Psychology can tell us a lot of true things about the human experience and how we react to those experiences. Medical science explains a great deal about our bodies. Cosmology sheds a lot of light on God's creation. Some of those fields even try to put forward plausible alternatives to creation and to God. It's not that they're completely wrong. It's just that they're almost right. And so Paul says here, don't be deluded. Don't buy their arguments hook, line, and sinker. Be encouraged, be confident, be assured in the true knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. There's a great book that I've been reading by Gavin Ortland called Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. And it's not your typical kind of apologetic book that you'd expect. Gavin has done a great job of explaining the reason for God across a spectrum of fields of scientific and human pursuits of knowledge to show why God just makes sense scientifically, philosophically, even aesthetically. The world is just more beautiful, more reasonable, more rational, and more purposeful if there is a God. And I'll have that book in the library if you want to sign it out. And then at this point, Paul sort of has this image in his mind. You can imagine Paul as he's writing here, and he has this image of this great congregation of Christians knit together in love, reaching out to fill themselves up with the riches of abundance and confident knowledge in God, and it causes him to rejoice in two other outcomes. Not just that they are equipped to not be deluded by plausible arguments, But he's also delighting and rejoicing, he says, in their order and firmness of faith. He says, Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. If a loving community of Christians is equipping themselves to guard against false teaching and against false teachers and against heresy and against false ideologies and against insidious philosophies, if that unified body of believers is keeping the crazy teaching out of their church, then Paul rejoices that they will be orderly and steadfast. Those are two great outcomes that Paul expects for this great little church in Colossae. He means that the church is going to be run well in very practical terms. There won't be any crazy stuff going on on the Sunday service or in Bible studies or in youth group or wherever. In the, in the order of the church, things will be going well. There'll be good order because there won't be false teaching and, and people won't be getting carried away with, with strange kind of tertiary nonsense. They'll be focused on the heart of the gospel. And I tell you what, if you want to see a church that is knit together in love come unraveled really fast, then just let the clear, good teaching of God and the gospel get abandoned. You you give up on clear teaching of God and the gospel and Jesus Christ, and you start to focus on strange tertiary issues around the periphery of it, and the unity and the tight-knit community of that church will unravel. Or even let it get infiltrated and tainted by erroneous cultural ideologies or even distorted by inaccurate biblical interpretations. Any of that will destroy the good order and unity of a church. So Paul says, press on into knowledge and wisdom so that I can rejoice in your good order. 
And then he says, there will also be a firmness and a steadfastness to the faith of that kind of people, that kind of church. It will be rooted and planted on the cornerstone of the gospel and the knowledge of God, pleraphoria, full assurance, full confidence in the knowledge of God. We want to be pleraphorians, and I think I just invented a word while I was writing this. We all want to be pleraphorians. We all want to be composed of and bearing the full assurance and the full amount and the full confidence of the knowledge of God. Just as almost right teaching, namely false teaching, can cause unity and disorder to unravel, it can also shake a weak faith. Paul says, you want to see a church get disorderly? Just bring in some false or almost right teaching. It'll get disorderly in a hurry. He says, you want your faith shaken? Just bring in some false teaching or some almost right teaching and some almost right knowledge. If you are not fully equipped with the full knowledge of the gospel and the mystery of Jesus Christ, a faith that has not rooted itself in the knowledge of God, has not reached past just being part of a comfortable social club where people are nice and they get along and they babysit my kids and they take care of me and they bring me a meal when I'm sick. Those are all good things. But if that's all you get out of church, then the first thing that comes along that sounds distracting, sounds plausible, will start to shake your faith. Oh, you know, Are God and Allah the same God? You know, maybe that sort of makes sense. Oh, those Buddhists, they got lots of interesting things to say. You know, or I saw this really compelling show on television that was telling me something, and now I'm starting to wonder. So Paul says, no, I want your church to be orderly, and I don't want your faith shaken. And so you take your Christian unity, you good little church in Colossae, which is doing great, that's knit together in love. You take that unity and that knitted together in love, and you use that as the foundation point to press on into, we get it, Paul, third time now, knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Know God, know the gospel, press into who the person of Jesus Christ is and the implications of the gospel and all those things that the Bible spells out for us that are real in the gospel and that we're going to get into, that Paul starts to then unpack in chapters 3 and 4. He starts to say this is all the practical implications. He starts to say this is what it means for our Christian identity. This is what it means for us to be husbands, for us to be wives, for us to be bosses, for us to be employees, for us to be children, for us to be fathers and mothers. He starts to unpack all the implications of that. And he says this is what you need to learn. Because I don't want you disordered and I don't want your faith shaken. A faith that thinks that peaceful unity is the end goal will be shaken by plausible arguments. And Paul wants to rejoice in the firmness of their faith. And he says, that's why I struggle. That's why I pray. That's why I strive that you will move past just simple unity and lay hold of the riches of knowledge. Now, you may have noticed, Paul finishes with an encouragement. You may have noticed a couple of times here in the contrast, Paul inserts of his absence while he's teaching about unity. In verse 1, he says, you all who have not even seen my face. Paul emphasizes the fact, I'm not even there. You've never even met me. You don't even know me. But then he says in verse 2, I want you knit together in love. So you don't even know me and you've never even seen me, but I want you unified. Then he says in verse 5, he says, I am absent in the body. He isn't even there. 
But then he says, I'm with you in spirit. And there's sort of a play on words taking place here where Paul uses his absence to contrast and highlight the power of Christian unity, the importance of Christian unity, even his own unity with these people that he has never met before. And so you wonder, you think, okay, like Paul, how can you have unity? How can you be there with them? How can there be this tight-knit unity in love with people that you've never met? The unity that they share is in the knowledge of God. And there's almost a subtext lesson here for us as a church. In between the lines, if we want to achieve unity, the important thing is not to focus on each other so much, but focus on our knowledge of God. As we press into our knowledge of God, we will inevitably be unified together and preserve our unity. Paul felt like he was unified with this church in Colossae who had never even met. He felt like even though he had never been there, was not there right now, he felt he was with them in spirit. Why would Paul say that? And maybe you've encountered this as Christians. Maybe you've traveled, you've been around the world, and you've run into somebody, and you just immediately know they're a believer. And you're sitting down there at the all-you-can-eat buffet at the resort or wherever it is that you are, and you realize, hey, this is another Christian. And then immediately you feel that connection, and you feel unified in Christ. Paul knows that he has the knowledge of God and Jesus. And these Colossians, they have the knowledge of God and Jesus. And you know what? Christians around the world and here in Halliburton, even in our own church, as we grow together and press in on the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, you know who we run into when we get up there? Oh, you, you're here too. We're all unified together. Right? This is, it's almost a subtext. It's almost written between the lines here. But Paul plays off his absence and the unity of the church. And there's a lesson here, I think, for us. That when we are seeking Christian unity, maybe there's somebody that's sitting across the church from you right now. Or maybe you're at home and you're not here because there's someone that you're not completely unified with. You know what? It, your Christian unity may not come from focusing so much on each other. Well, you know, we got to work it out. Maybe you do. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what Paul is saying here. If all of us as believers seek the knowledge of God together, then we will suddenly discover that we're unified in our knowledge of God and the gospel. We'll all arrive there together. Paul doesn't need to know anything about these people or even need to have met to know that he's unified with them in the knowledge of Christ. And so if you just seek, press into the riches, the treasure, the assurance, the wisdom, the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. It'll equip you with discernment. It will keep your church in good order. It'll give you a firm and steadfast faith while preserving unity and love. And we're a good little church. We're founded on the true gospel. And I think we are mostly filled with a pretty decent crowd of believers who are doing okay in their Christian walk, just like this church in Colossae. And here's the thing. We also live in a culture that fills the air with plausible arguments. It doesn't matter whether it's TV or a book or YouTube or the Internet or social media. The air of our culture is filled with ideologies that sound plausible. They are filling our inbox even with Christian teaching, some of which we think sounds plausible. And Paul's encouragement to this decent little church with a good start in the gospel is don't be deluded by those arguments. You want good order in your church. You want to preserve that Christian unity. You want to be strong in your faith. Don't listen to the noise. 
Press in on your knowledge of God. Press in on the riches of assurance and understanding. Press in on the treasures that, are, that Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, is full of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is good teaching that Paul gives the early church. It's good counsel from the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to follow it. I like it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Again, I just thank you for this letter to the Colossians. I thank you that Paul struggled, strove, suffered in order to see the church unified. Father, I thank you that we have a church in large measure that is unified. I've been here eight years. I don't remember or can think of any big drama in our church. And that's great. But Father... It is easy to stop there. It's easy to be content there. There's a lot of pastors in our denomination. There's a lot of pastors across this country right now that if you told them they could just have a unified church, knit together in love, they'd put up their hands and take it. But Lord, that's not the end goal. The end goal of the Christian life is not just comfortably living with people that you like and get along with. That's just the beginning of maturing. That's just the beginning of pressing into riches and treasures of knowledge and wisdom which mature us and which equip us to face the almost right ideologies, the plausible arguments that are intended to shipwreck us. And so, Father, we thank you for the unity that we have, and we strive with Paul to preserve it. But we press in, opening our Bibles, reading your scripture, praying to your Holy Spirit for knowledge and wisdom to go deeper, that we would be sharpened, that we would not be taken off guard, and that there would continue to be good order here and firm, steadfast faith. What an incredible lesson, Lord. We just pray it. We pray that this would be true of us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us. Father God, you are so good. We thank you for your goodness to us in Christ's name. Amen.